And join me in John 14, and chapter 14. We don't know this experience by reality, but consider the glory of seeing Christ in person, experiencing his ministry firsthand as the disciples did, or a terrifying reality to think then of him leaving, of being absent from among you. We've only known an absent Jesus. We haven't known the presence of our Lord as our disciples did, and throughout his ministry among them, he had been their help and their comfort. His presence with them had been the key to their very success as disciples. In the hardest of moments, he being there stepped in to walk them through the hardest of realities. So for instance, as they found themselves in the midst of the Sea of Galilee in a storm that was out of control and in which they were concerned about their own death and convinced they would soon die, they looked to Jesus who was with them and his presence made all the difference. As he rose from his nap and spoke to the storm, peace, be still. When they faced the demon-possessed man of whom a legion of demons inhabited his body, who was wild and violent, uncontrollable by society, a threat to anyone he came across, when he approached them as they stepped off the boat in the garrisons, it was Jesus who made all the difference, who stepped in and said, come out of him. When the great crowd needed food out on the countryside and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, what is your plan to feed these thousands of people when they had no answer but a mere five loaves and two fish? They found Jesus had the answer, comforted and directed and provided for them. When their friend Lazarus lay dead in the tomb for four days, most certainly dead beyond anyone's expectation, they again turned their eyes to Jesus to see what miraculous work he would do next. The presence of Jesus made all the difference for the disciples. And now here in the upper room, as he is entering into his final hours, he's let them know that his presence is soon to be gone. He's no longer going to be with them. He's about to depart and go to his Father. This terrifying reality has distraught them as he has told them, do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going away for a purpose, and I'll return again for you, and that purpose is complete. But he says more. He says, before I leave, I want to let you know there's some comforts, there's some promises for you. There's some realities that are absolutely true when I'm gone that will be the the powerhouse promises that will sustain you in my absence, and not just in, in your life, but in the life of every believer to come until I return. This is what's at stake in John 14, 15 to 24 as we come to that text this morning. You must know this is a a difficult text in some ways. There's mysterious statements here. There's deep theological truth here. But there's also clear, simple, obvious truths and promises here. So by God's kindness, we won't get lost in the theological controversies and mysterious realities, so hopefully we'll explain them and understand them. But more than that, hopefully, we'll grab the promises of Jesus. For he is, in this moment, absent bodily, but present, as we'll see, by his Spirit. He says this to his disciples in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for, the, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. In this mysterious passage, at its first reading anyways, we see some hard things said by our Lord requiring deep thought, but also obvious, objective promises which rise to the top of this text. Jesus is clearly saying this to encourage and comfort his disciples. He knows he's leaving. They know he's leaving. He wants them to know this is what will get you through. He's actually told them that it will get better for them when he leaves. They'll do greater works than even he did in verses 12 through 14. He tells them that because he leaves, they will ask something in his name. And because they ask, he will do it if it's according to his will and for his Father's glory. Those are bold and big promises intended to comfort the men, these apostles, before he leaves. But he's not done. He, he goes on from that to turn their attention in this section to the mutual relationship of love between Father and Son and Spirit and Disciple. He points them to the consolation and the, the comfort that this relationship between the disciples of Jesus and the Father in heaven have together and the comfort it will provide when he's gone. In other words, they can know that they are his disciples if they love him and obey his commandments. And they can know that he loves them because he will send his spirit to dwell with them. More than that, he himself will come to them. More than that, the Father himself will come to them. Those are big promises. We, we've amped up from you will do great things and you will have great answers to prayer in 12 to 14 to now you will love me and obey my commandments and I will send my spirit to dwell in you. And I myself will manifest myself to you. And my Father himself will come to you. There's a two-pronged promise here that I see in the text to these disciples in light of Jesus leaving soon. It is their love for him and his love for them. It's a loving relationship between the two. He emphasizes first their love for him. He says that right away in verse 15, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. They can have the comfort and the hope in Jesus' absence when they see the validity of their love for him lived out in obedience to him. In case you missed it, Jesus said it three other times in the text. He says it a total of four times in a matter of nine verses. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Again in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
And he says the opposite in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You have to ask as you're reading the text, why does Jesus say that to them? Why does he say to them, I'm trying to comfort you and this is comforting to you. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think it's within the logic of what has just been said to them in verses 12 through 14. That the promise to them, they will do great things and they will have great answers to prayer in his absence. That was the Lord's side of that equation. They'll they'll do great things because they ask great things of the Lord and he'll do them for for them. Now here's the disciple side of that in verse 15. This is the loving obedience. This is the condition of the prayer of verses 12 through 14. The working and the praying to the Lord to do great things is connected to this fountain of love for Christ. That is to flow in the heart of every true disciple of Christ. This love is clearly explained to not just be a a mushy feeling of affection that's expressed and experienced when the person is there. When you can swoon over them in person and express to them how glad you are that they are who they are. But then when they leave, you forget that you love them and you move on to a new love. Now this is a love that's different than that. It's a love that carries through into absence. It's a love so filled with the confidence and commitment to Christ that even when he's gone, they persist in obedience to him. Really what Jesus is calling them to is the working out of the Father's love for them. In other words, this is how they will know that they have been loved by the Father and that they themselves know the Father. Remember, that was part of the issue earlier on in this text. Where Thomas said, show us the Father. Or Philip, excuse me, said, show us the Father. And Jesus says, you don't know the Father? I've been with you this long, you don't know me? You understand me? Now he's saying to them, you can know that you know us. The triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you love us, and you can know you love us if you obey This is exactly how the Apostle John will talk in his epistle. Don't you remember this? Why don't you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I was just going to read it to you, but I think it would be helpful for you to see it. 1 John chapter 2. This is John's first epistle after his gospel. Spoken to the church to help them understand the words of Christ and to apply the truth about Christ to their own existence. He is especially making clear to them in his epistle how it is that they can know that they've been born from God. How it is that they can have assurance that they have true life, the life of Christ in them. And so he's giving them a bunch of tests or proofs of their spiritual life. So in in chapter 2, 1 John 2, verse 3, he says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see the logic of John the Apostle taking the words of Jesus of John 14 and explaining them to the church. How do you know that you know God? In part, you know because you obey. You walk in his commandments. Turn to chapter 4. Looking at verse 19 all the way down through chapter 5 and verse 3. Comes back to this topic as he closes the letter. He says in verse 19 of chapter 4, We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see the logic of John the Apostle as he explains to us how we can know that we have been loved by God, therefore we know God. It is that we obey God, namely that we love those whom he loves. We love others in the family, and we love God and obey God, and this is his commandment that we love one another. See the logic of John in 1 John is rooted in the words of Jesus in John 14, showing us how deeply encouraging it is to have love for Christ that compels our obedience. Christian, do you have in your heart a longing to please Christ? A longing to obey the Father, to know the words that you know how He wants you to live? Do you have an earnest zeal in the depths of your soul to be compelled to keep the words of God? As imperfect as you are, as as failing as you happen along the path, as much as you trip up, you get back up and long to do what God has called you to do. What's at the root of that? Well, certainly if you're not in Christ, it could be a desire to, to earn your salvation. Plenty of people have ended up in eternal condemnation and what the Bible calls hell because they thought that they had done enough to please the Father of their own good works. It could be that compelling reality in your heart. Or it could be that because you've been so loved by God when you were yet a sinner, an enemy of the Godhead, when you had chosen to go your own way and do your own thing, God entered into your life with His truth, compelling you to see the reality of your sinfulness, gripping you with the the truthfulness of your condemnation, calling you up short and helping you to see that you have no hope in yourself to save yourself. That there's no hope in a religious system or religious exercises to get you through the doors of heaven into the glory of God forever. And you've realized that this love for you by God through His Son who came to earth and lived a life of perfect obedience and died a substitutionary death in your place is your only hope. And you've turned from any hope in yourself or anyone else or any religious system and placed it fully and freely in Jesus Christ alone and He has become your salvation. And you've entered into the the love of the triune God through the Son. You've been forgiven of your sins and given life in Him and now you know the love of God in you and you are compelled by that love to love in return. See, the love of God is not static. It it will not leave you alone. It does not enter in, get you out of hell forever, and let you be until then. The love of God enters into you and dynamically, constantly, consistently compels you to pursue love for God. And what does that look like? It looks like obedience to Him. 
that Jesus is giving them hope. When I'm gone, you can know that you know me because you'll want to obey me. You'll want to do what I've told you to do. You'll want to heed my every command. He gives them a second hope. It's his love for them. This is the bulk of the section. It's his love for them. He comforts them by pointing them to this great love that he, Father, Son, and Spirit have for his disciples. His love for them specifically is shown in this threefold coming, the coming of the Spirit, the coming of the Son, and the coming of the Father. God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person of the Godhead is promised in this text to come and to be present with his disciples. So Jesus says, I'm going to leave you bodily, physically. I'm going to be gone. But I promise you that I'm going to give you far greater than my physical presence. I'm going to give you spiritual, eternal presence of Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why I said at the beginning, this is a powerhouse promise. This is the the hub of, of everything you need to follow Christ and to be useful for Him. It is that Father, Son, and Spirit dwell with you as a follower of Jesus. Consider first, the Spirit will come. He promises them that in verses 16 and 17. He says that in His absence, He'll ask the Father. The Father will send another Helper to be with them forever. Notice the the triune reality of that. The Son asks the Father. The Father sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes and indwells the believer. There's there's a, a cogent unity in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit working to accomplish one thing, one will, one purpose, working together with different functions and roles, but one God in three persons to accomplish the same thing. Namely, that the Spirit would come and would dwell within the believers. There's a lot of confusion, as you know, in the church of today over the reality of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. A lot of false teaching, a lot of aberrations, a lot of false practices in the name of the Spirit, a lot of blasphemy, frankly, of the Spirit of God on both sides of the equation. Those who think little, care little, talk little, depend little, are empowered little by the Spirit of God. And those on the other end who do all kinds of crazy supernatural phenomena, as they say, and assign it to the Spirit. So what does the Bible say about the Spirit and His role and work and function in the life of the believer? Well, the next few chapters of John's Gospel will be very helpful here. I'm glad you asked. You didn't, but I asked for you. John 14 and John 16 will come again and again with the truth about the Spirit of God. Notice in our text, trying to stick to our text and say what our text says about the Spirit of God. Notice the string of descriptions that Jesus gives here. First of all, the Spirit is asked for by the Son and sent by the Father. So the Spirit proceeds out of the Father, directed by and given to us on at the behest or at the command of the Father. Again, the Trinitarian formula here, the Son asking, the Father sending, the Spirit coming, one God, three persons accomplishing one will for the one glory of our one God. Not only that, but the Spirit is described as another helper. Do you see that in verse 16? Another helper. The word for another means he is another of the same kind, of the same essence. 
It's like kids when you have dessert today and after lunch, if mom provided one, and you want another cookie. You say, can I have another one? You're asking for another of the same kind. Or if you don't like that cookie that mom made, you ask, can I have another dessert? One of a different kind. The word Jesus uses here is another of the same kind, another of the same essence. Meaning he himself, as the son, had been their helper, had been their comforter, had been their advocate in his bodily presence. I I went through that in the introduction. They faced evil after evil and trial after trial and perplexity after perplexity. Jesus was there as their paraclete, as their advocate, as their counselor, as their guide, as their friend, as their comforter, as their provider, as their director. And now he's saying, I'm going to leave. You're going to be without that, but don't worry. You'll have something better. You'll have the Spirit in you. Another helper will come to you. This word for helper, parakletos, a word you know well, means to call alongside for the sake of help. It's a word unique to John in his writings in the New Testament. Only he uses it four times in his gospel, and then one time in 1 John 2, 1, where he references Jesus as the advocate of the believer. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. When we face the condemnation of our sins, we have Jesus Christ, the righteous, as our advocate, 1 John 2, 1. Meaning, in a legal sense, when we have no answer in ourselves, when we stand condemned before the, the righteous throne of God, we call in our friend to stand at our right-hand side and say, no, he's mine. I've claimed him by my sacrifice He's clothed in my righteousness. He's mine. I vouch for him. But the word means more than that. It means more than just help in a legal matter. It means a counselor, one who who comes along to direct and and to help through hard things. It speaks of a a helper, one who sustains and, and strengthens for a particularly difficult reality, carrying them along, encouraging and giving aid to the one being comforted. Jesus had, in case you don't know what it means, just think of what Jesus had provided for the disciples in his bodily ministry with them. In all of that, in all the ways he blessed them and helped them and directed them and spoke truth to them, in all the ways he protected them from evil, in all the ways he got them out of jams, in all the ways he helped them along the way, so too the Spirit comes along and amplifies that ministry from within. Notice the next descriptor of the Spirit, that he will be with them forever. He will be with them into eternity is the literal phrase. So the Spirit does not come upon them and then leave them as he often did in the Old Testament, coming upon a saint for a unique moment of ministry. Think Samson in the book of Judges, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish a supernatural mighty act, and the Spirit left him for a time. It's, it's not that work of the Spirit in this new dispensation of grace. But rather, all those who've been sealed and converted by the glorious grace of Christ have been given the Spirit permanently. He comes in to be with them forever, never to depart from them. Yet another feather in the cap of the assurance of your salvation. For those of you who wrestle through, am I in Christ or not? And I in no way minimize that reality. That's a a hard row to hoe. As you wrestle with, do I know Jesus or don't I? 
Well, is the Spirit of God in you? And if He is, know that He will never leave you. He is with you forever into eternity. He will keep you not just until the day of eternity, but through eternity. Indwelling us forever, making us fit to be in the presence of God forever. Jesus is departing to prepare a home for us, a place we can enter in and say, this is finally where I belong. The Spirit has come to us to prepare us for that place. To make us ready to go there and be with Christ there. He's doing the the back-end work of Jesus as Jesus prepares for us a place, the Spirit prepares us for that place. Jesus also calls him the Spirit of truth. Unique again to John, he uses it again in chapters 15 and 16. Jesus has just said in verse 6 of John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now he says the Father will send the Spirit to you in my absence, and that Spirit is the Spirit of truth. In other words, without me around, truth in flesh, know that you will have the Spirit living in you who is also the Spirit of truth. And he will testify to you, as we'll see in John 16, he will testify to you the truth. He will remind you of all that I have said to you. He will teach and instruct you in all that I have told you is the truth. He is the spirit of truth. Being the spirit of truth then, he is that which the world cannot receive. That's the next descriptor. The world cannot receive this spirit of truth. Blinded under the deception of the devil, caught by the power of his lies, they've already proven that they can't see and know the truth, right? Who have they done that with? Jesus himself, truth incarnate. He's provided sign after sign for them, undeniably displaying his divine nature. He has said to them again and again, this is the truth straight from my Father in heaven, spoken to them with authority like none other ever has. And what have they said about him? What has been their judgment of Jesus? Truth incarnate. He is of his father, the devil. He is a liar and a blasphemer. They couldn't see truth when it was literally standing in front of them. How in the world would they ever perceive, know, understand, and receive truth when it is in the believer by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth? They cannot receive the Spirit. Clearly seen in Acts 2 when the Spirit of God comes upon the early church in the apostles. They stand in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming in diversified tongues, known languages of the pilgrims who were there in Jerusalem, speaking in their language the truth about Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. As they did that, what what was the judgment of the world of them in that moment? They are drunk. How about Acts 4? Let's fast forward a little bit as the apostles, after healing the lame man in chapter 3, Peter and John did, they appear before the Sanhedrin, the assembly, and they're on trial because they use that to speak of Jesus whom the Sanhedrin had put to death. Now they're saying this Jesus is your only hope. He's your Messiah. And they call him before the, the council and they say, stop speaking of Jesus. Stop telling those 
lives. Here they have an amazing miracle that's happened before their very eyes, and they can't see it. They can't perceive it. They can't understand it. They can't receive it. Jesus says the spirit of truth will come, and the world will not receive him. But Jesus tells them in verse 17 that you as the twelve will know the spirit because he dwells with them and he will be in them. He reminds them that they know the Spirit of God because they've seen and heard the Spirit's work in the life and ministry of Jesus. That this Spirit has sustained Jesus from conception to ascension. Just think of the times you know of in the Gospels where it's recorded that the Spirit did this or that in the life of Jesus. His conception is said to have happened by the Spirit of God. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes Isaiah. And he says this of himself, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That sounds like a nice encapsulation, a nice summary of the ministry of Jesus, right? Healing the blind, setting the lame free, letting the captives, spiritually captive, letting them go free. That's his ministry. How did that happen? Empowered by the Spirit of God. Jesus says to his disciples, you've seen that. The same power of the Spirit that has been upon me and at work in me will now be in you. One of the best tools you have as you read the Bible is your own understanding of the English language and your own observation of that as you read. For instance, prepositions matter, don't they? What preposition is used makes a big difference in the meaning of what is said. And that's exactly what happens in John 14 when he says to them that the Spirit of God will be with you and in you. He's been with you and he will be in you. He's been with you in me. You've seen his work. You've heard him testify to the truth through me, but now he will come to you in my absence and personally, individually abide within you. He'll make his home within you. He'll never leave you. He'll always be present with you, always directing you, always guiding you, always leading you into the truth, always teaching you of sin and righteousness and of the grace of God. Always interceding for you before the Father, as Romans 8 says. It's obviously a true promise, not just to the 11 who heard it in the upper room, but to every disciple of Jesus in every generation. Other texts, namely Ephesians 1, make clear that the Spirit of God is the sign and the seal of the grace of God upon your soul. That having been born from above, you are given the Spirit as a sign and a seal. You're sealed, never to be changed, and you are marked as God's. You now belong to Him, paid for by the precious blood of His Son, guaranteed to finish by the sealing work of His Spirit. He will sanctify you. He will move you along in righteousness. He will sustain you. He will work through every trial for your good and the glory of the Son and the Father. He will accomplish God's will for you. He will guide you into all truth. He will keep you from evil. He will compel you to serve others. 
He will use you to accomplish his will. He will keep and sustain you and preserve you until the final day. He will teach you and sanctify you, making you holy in him. He will cleanse you and purify you. He will point you to Jesus as the prize upon which to fix your eyes for eternal life. And he will deliver us safely home. What a promise in the absence of the bodily presence of Jesus to have his spirit dwelling within us. If you do any teaching at all, you know what it would be like to not just be outside of your student's head telling them how to think, but to be inside their head teaching them in the moment how to take what you've taught them and apply it to live rightly in that situation, enlightening them in their current circumstance with what they know to be true by your teaching to them. That's what God has done for you, believer, by His Spirit. He's come to reside in you, to illuminate to you all that you need for life and godliness to empower you for all of the good works He's foreordained for you to do. To carry you through this dry, barren wilderness. To deliver you safely and joyfully home. You don't look as excited about that as I am. You should be delighted with that glorious reality, the Spirit of God in you. But there's more. Jesus says, the Son will come. He says, I myself will come to you. Not only will the Spirit come at my request, but I also will come to you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not let you be by yourselves. But I will return to you. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not going to die and leave you all alone. He's told them, I'm going to die. But I'm going to come back for you. He will live, he said, and so also they will live with him in verse 19. He says the world will no longer see him, but they will see him again in verse verse 20, verse 19 and 20. Jesus is most obviously talking about his death and then leading then to his resurrection and then of his post-resurrection appearances after the cross. Being lifted up on the cross, he'll draw all men to himself. All the world will see this dying Savior and they'll make comments and judgments about him as they pass by. But after he dies, he'll be hidden in a tomb, never to be seen of by the world again. Resurrected from that tomb and just think after his resurrection of who he appears to. First to the women in the garden, not to the soldiers who, the Roman unbelieving soldiers who are guarding his tomb. He does not appear to them. He leaves the grave without them ever seeing him. And he appears in that garden to Mary and to the women and tells them, I have risen. Go tell my disciples that I'm coming to them. Then he appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus as they wrestle with what just happened. He appears to them and reveals himself to them enlivening their faith, strengthening their zeal to continue believing in Jesus as their Messiah. He then enters into that upper room, those closed and locked doors, walking through in his glorified body to appear to his disciples, his apostles, to let them know, I am the Christ. And what happens in that moment? All those disciples who were doubting and fearing and fretting 
full of worry and anxiety who were, as John 19 will tell us, worried for their own lives for fear of the Jews. They will be given clear revelation of the resurrected Christ and it will completely alter them. Before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they believed he was from God. After the resurrection of Jesus, when he appears to them, they will grasp that he is one with God and that they are one with him and he with them. That's what Jesus himself says in verse 20. In that day. I think he's talking specifically of the day of his resurrection and his appearance to them. It swings on the hinge of the revelation of the risen Lord to his disciples. Before, they're full of fear. They're unsure. They have life, but they're in hiding, afraid of death. Afterwards, they are driven to live in a way they've never lived before. To stand on hostile street corners in Jerusalem and proclaim that Jesus whom you murdered is your Messiah. He rose from the grave. He's returning to judge the living and the dead. Repent and believe. They never would have done that if they did not see the resurrected Lord in the upper room. They were willing to live in a way they had never lived before because Jesus lives. And because Jesus came to them, they know then the true nature of Jesus as God in the flesh, as one with the Father. Jesus caps all that off in verse 21 when he repeats that truth that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if you lovingly obey me, you'll be loved by the Father and the Son will come and manifest himself to him. In other words, there's an increasing understanding of the nature of Jesus, of the truth of Jesus, of the glory of Jesus found in loving obedience to Jesus. There's more Jesus to be known than you currently know. There's more of his grace to comprehend. There's more of his mercy to experience. There's more of his power to walk in. There's more of his truth to understand and live by. And those who pursue loving obedience to him because they've been loved by him, he says, I will come to you and make manifest myself to you. This is combined then with that last part of this amazing promise by our Lord. Judas, not the one who betrayed our Lord, but the one called the son of James in Luke 6 and Acts 1, he questions our Lord about this manifestation in verse 21. He says, what, what are you talking about? How are you going to come and make yourself known? How are you going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And certainly he's thinking in physical terms as they all were at this point. Thinking of the, of the kingdom of Christ and physical realities, when are you going to come set up your throne in Jerusalem and how would you do that without the world seeing it? And Jesus responds to that question with a, another finger in the hand of God's promises which upholds every believer. Jesus says the one who loves him and keeps his word will be loved by the Father and the Father and the Son, he says, will come and make their home with him. Jesus is describing this relationship of love which flows in every direction, right? It's not a one-sided, a one-way loving relationship. It's it's in every way. It's a, a 360 kind of love. 
loved by the Father, rescued from our sin by the Father, love from before the foundation of the world, given life and faith and repentance by the Spirit because we've been loved by God. Knowing that love through the sending of His Son into the world, experiencing that love as we turn to Christ and believe on Him and know this new loving life, we now return in love to Him, seeking to obey Him and honor Him as we love Him, reborn into the family of God. Now we long to look like we're part of the family. Loving our Father, honoring our Father as we are intended to. And that loving obedience and loyalty to the Father through the Son is responded to by God with more love. He loves us, compelling our love. We love Him. He loves us in return. It's this ongoing cycle of constant, ever-flowing, everlasting love. Unending love from father to son to disciple, from disciple to father, from father to disciple. And the end game of that, Jesus says, is that the father will come. He and the father will come. We will come, he says, and make our home with him. The same word that's used in verse 2, that word for home, the same one used in verse 2 for rooms. So Jesus is leaving to prepare for us a, a place to dwell eternally in our eternal heavenly home, to, to be at home with the Father in a room made for us. But he's also saying the Spirit's at work in us now to make us a, a fitting dwelling place for the Father and the Son. We now become the, the temple of the living God. He dwelling in us and us abiding in Him. Father, Son, and Spirit. Mind-blowing, matchless promises. Beyond full comprehension. Can we admit that? Beyond full comprehension. That the Spirit of God and the Son of God and God the Father would come and dwell in you. Make their home in your heart. So how should you think about the absence, the physical absence of Jesus? Well, you should cling to these glorious promises that give you undying hope. The promise of your love for the Father made known by your obedience to Him as evidence of His love for you. And the promise of His love for you made known through the Spirit dwelling in you, the Son coming to you to manifest Himself to you, and the Father taking up residence in you as the temple of the living God. So how do you take these gloriously deep doctrinally rich realities and enter into Monday morning tomorrow. Three thoughts of application for you as we close our time together. The first is to be helped. Be helped. Brother or sister, you're likely doing 
too much on your own. You're entirely too self-dependent and self-reliant. You've thought too much of you and too little of the abiding presence of the living God in you. You've too often relegated God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to an afterthought. To when things fall apart and are a total mess, Lord, pick up the pieces. For everything God has asked you to walk through, to do, to face, to be a part of. For every hard conversation you need to have this week. Every difficult relationship you need to work at to show love when you're being shown hate in return. Every work directed by the Spirit to to do good works for the glory of God in your home or in your job or in your church. For every moment of obedience when you know the right thing to do but don't want to do it. For every instance when your mouth wants to run ahead of you and cause more trouble and hurt those you love the most. And for a million other things that you will face this week, brother or sister, God dwells in you. The living God has made His home in you and is with you to help you, to sustain you, to direct you, to empower you, to sanctify you. So as you enter into this week, be helped. Paul says it this way at the end of 2 Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's a benediction. I often use it at the end of a service. Hear it with fresh ears. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How much would your week radically change if those three things were ever present in your life? The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit of God. Be helped. Second thing is to be holy. To be holy. You knew this was coming, but I must call you to this. If God dwells in you, What kind of people ought we then to be? If God has has so condescended to us to, to take up residence in us so as to prepare us for our eternal dwelling with Him in all of the fullness of glory, how ought then we to live Tuesday morning or Friday afternoon or Saturday at lunch? Paul again answers that in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is a glorious layer and urgent, compelling reality to force you forward in holiness to drive you to pursue yet another way in which you would look like Christ. Lastly then, be hope-filled. Be hope-filled. Be helped, be holy, and be hope-filled. What you have in you right now is the presence of the Spirit of God, 
manifesting to you the Son of God in which the glorious God of heaven dwells in you in some way beyond our comprehension. This is but a down payment on a future, eternal, unending reality in which we dwell with God and God dwells with us. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. A promise is given to you in light of the harsh realities of life in this sin-cursed world. Until that day, these things persist. There's tears in our eyes and death abounding around us and mourning within us and around us, crying and pain and all the former things of a sin-cursed world. But you have in, in you the promise of a greater glorious day, dwelling in you at every moment to remind you when you face yet another layer of hardship and harsh reality in a sin-cursed world, that it will not always be this way. The Spirit is there internally to remind you as a down payment on a glorious future, hold on, your inheritance is coming. May God help us be faithful until that day. Father in heaven, thank you for the glory and the goodness of your truth. Thank you for this text and for the promises it contains. Having heard them, Father, help us to internalize them and personalize them, making clear what they mean and why they matter for us individually. By your spirit, would you teach us these things? And would the result be that we would truly be helped by you in the week to come, that we would be holy, and that we would be filled with hope. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.